Okay, so um, like Eric said, I'm Peter. Um, if you guys haven't met me yet, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> maybe because I look like one of you guys, I don't know. Um, but if, if I don't know you, then introduce yourself, okay? I'm, I'm friendly, I promise. Um, <laughs> so laughing. Uh, but I am, so I'm a, I'm a grad student, graduate student at UCLA, so if you, if you, <laughs> if you, if you like science, then come talk to me, because I love talking about science. Um, but if you really want to geek out, you talk to Emily over there, the person who, woo, yeah. Because uh, she knows a lot more than I do. Okay, so, um, so you know that saying, like, absence makes the heart grow fonder? Well, I think the real reason I'm up here is because my sermon is going to rekindle your love for Eric's sermon, uh, <laughs> even though it's always really long, but whatever. Um, but I, I am happy to be here, and I will say that Eric listened to it on, on Wednesday, and he took out all the heretical things that I said, so I think we're good. We're good. Um, but I'm, I'm privileged that I can study God's Word with you guys, and um, I can share it with you guys. Um, and I think that's really a testament to Eric and Lighthouse as a whole. They really want to train up and equip kingdom-minded people. Um, and so, but it is, you know, my first time preaching, and so please bear with me and be gracious with me. Um, and my hope is that God's word can shine um, even despite me, and he'll touch your hearts even despite me. Okay, so let's pray together first, and then we'll start. Father, I, um, I'm thankful that these people who are in front of me, God, they're, they're family, they're my brothers and sisters, God, and we um, have this one common commonality in Christ, God, so I'm thankful for that, God, and we can't thank you enough with just our words, God, so, and we try our best to live out our lives, and we live and act and, and do things, God, to glorify you, and so um, we hope that this time would be glorifying to you, that this is a fellowship time, a community time, um, and a worship time, so in Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so short story. When I was younger, um, I moved around a lot, and so I went to a couple different elementary schools, and I actually went to three different middle schools, which is crazy. Um, but there was one constant that always defined me when it, wherever I went. And so I've been playing violin for a long time, since I was very little. Um, and, um, you know, whenever I moved around to a new school, that was the one thing that people knew me for, was I was the violin guy. And my identity as a violin guy, that really elevated my status among my friends and even throughout the school. I know, it's really nerdy, but that was the school that I went to. Um, and yeah, I mean, seriously, like violin made me popular, it gave me friends, um, it gave me their respect, their attention, um, and I loved it, and I ate it up. And throughout middle school and even in high school, um, there would be these competitions and I, I liked those because I, my skills would be pitted against another person's, and I would always win. Um, <laughs> I know, it may, it may feel good. Um, and so violin became, that became the platform that I used to feel superior and better than other people. And so today we'll actually see that the Corinthian church, they were no different. They were defining themselves by their wealth, their intelligence, their status, you know, the kinds of respect they got from other people. And their misplaced identities in that way, it led them to use each other as stepping stones um, for selfish and, and worldly gain. But they're also Christians, right? Which means that they were rescued by Jesus and adopted into God's family. They would live set apart from the world, countercultural to everything that the world says is satisfying for you. But they weren't living like that. They weren't living like countercultural people. And so that's what we're going to see. We're going to see today. What's the response from Paul to a church like that? 
What's the exhortation to a church like that? And like me, like the violin guy, like who've forgotten our identities. Okay, so if you guys have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Okay, and as you're flipping there, um, I did want to set the groundwork a little bit. So if you guys remember from last week, from chapter 5, Paul had started to shift his letter from addressing divisions within the Corinthian church to more specific problems. And in particular, last week he was addressing the church who didn't take radical steps necessary to protect that man, right, who was in a really whack relationship, and to protect that church. And that's the kind of theme that Paul is developing in chapter 6. He's calling for the preservation of the church as a, as a unified body, and he's, he's proclaiming them, and he's calling them to proclaim and to display their identity um, as God's family and primary covenantal um, community. Okay, so let's read our verses. I'm actually going to start from chapter 5, verse 9, and then we're going to go all the way to chapter 6, verse 11. I know, I know it's a bit of a read, but um, I hope the context from chapter 5 will help us see that Paul is extending his discussion from chapter 5. Okay, so chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. So as we read, I hope you could sense kind of the tone here, Paul's angry tone. And rightfully so. He's angry because the way that they're living their life is actually threatening the unity of the church and making a mockery of the gospel. And he's exhorting them to remember who you are, remember who they are, that their identity is in Christ, and that that has already elevated their status far beyond their imagination. And that's our key idea for tonight. Living in the way of, of Messiah is to remember your unique status born out of a gospel-formed identity. Living in the way of Messiah is to remember your unique status born out of your gospel-formed identity. Okay, and we're going to just jump in straight to the first point. The first point is don't forget your status. 
don't forget your status. Okay, so let's look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Okay, so what's happening here? Well, Paul had heard through the grapevine that some kind of wrong was done between two brothers in the church, which happens, right, because we're all sinners. Um, But their method of resolving that conflict was to sue each other, taking legal action against each other in the Roman courts. Okay, and so, but I, but I do want to clarify what these wrongs are, what these grievances are. Um, they were not criminal in nature. So these weren't like sexual abuse or like murder. Um, for those, you should for sure go to the courts. But we know from verses 2 and 3 that they were cases of trivial matter, of matters pertaining to everyday life. And so these are matters that arise because humans are sinners and we're bound to hurt those that are around, especially family. And so, for example, I remember when I used to, and I think I still do sometimes, I make, I make a lot of jokes at the expense of other people. Um, and that could hurt them, and it could cause a strain in our relationship. But that wasn't criminal. But it, but it still hurt them, right? And so Paul isn't saying here that the courts are inherently bad, or that we should ignore our governing authorities. But we should submit to our justice system, especially when it comes to like criminal matters like we talked about. Um, And there are even times when taking legal action is a good thing, and it can be used for good. And if you don't know what those situations are, you can ask Eric. So what's Paul saying here then? What is he actually saying? Well, he's saying that these disputes most likely had to do with things like business dealings or economic damage or personal property. And he doesn't specify much more else beyond that, but he does imply that these are disputes that could be resolved within the church, and it should be. Maybe it's like a brother cheating someone out of money. You're getting scammed. Again, it's not criminal in nature, but it's still hurtful, right? But this is important. Paul isn't trying to draw a line about which situation you can take your brother to court and which situations you can't. No, what he's actually saying is that there are no situations where taking your brother to court is, is okay. He's saying, your family, you guys are brothers. How can you do that? How can you do that to each other? And Paul really contrasts this with verses 2 and 3. And so you look with me there. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Okay, Paul is going cosmic here, right? He's going to the supernatural. He's referring to the end times here when God will restore us completely. And that's when we can see correctly right from wrong, good from evil, like God does. And that's how we can judge the world. That's how we judge angels. And so Paul is reminding them of their unique authority and privileged status. He's saying, you have the power of the six infinity stones, so why can't you take care of Thanos? I don't get it. So if you can judge right and wrong in the universe context, then you can judge right and wrong in the everyday context. And that's the crux of Paul's exhortation. He's saying, don't sell yourself short. Your status is God's people. You're you're God's elect. You're set apart for this special cosmic purpose. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Now, for the people of Corinth at the time, thinking about the Roman court system, it was almost equivalent to corruption. Not too unlike the way that our society, and I don't know if you have friends, but my friends complain a lot about our American political system. Um, 
because it's corrupt, right? And basically, the, the court system back in Corinth, it was so rigged that only the wealthy, the higher status people would actually win any cases. And they would win any lawsuits, right? So that means that only the wealthy and, 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 the, and the higher status people would even sue because they know they would win. And the lesser status people had no choice. They had no chance here. So what does that mean for the Corinthian church? Well, for the church, it means that it wasn't likely just any two brothers going to court against each other. It was most likely a Christian brother of a higher status suing a Christian brother of a lower status. It wasn't about righting a wrong. It wasn't about seeking justice. It was a power play. How dare you wrong me? Do you not know who I am? The person that I am, the power that I have and the connections that I have, you've messed with the wrong person. Right? That's, that's what he's saying, the guy who's suing. Do you ever feel that way? Can you think of some difficult relationships you have? And hopefully some people are coming into your mind. Maybe with your parents. You don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Maybe with your classmates or your teammates. They're just not putting in the same amount of effort that you are, and that frustrates you. Maybe with someone here, even. Do you ever think, like, if only things worked out the way that I wanted them to, then my parents will know that they're always wrong, and they would feel bad for yelling at me? That's vindication. That's justice, right? Or I wish, or you're thinking, I wish my coach would catch him skipping out on practice or badmouthing people in the locker room. Well, then that guy would get punished for what he did, right? So that's vindication, and that's justice. Well, what you're actually doing there is you're taking that person to court in your mind, and you're doing that for the sake of proving yourself right and proving that person wrong. And you're declaring that they've wronged you and you need to seek your own justice in some way. And that's how that's the world actually operates, right? There's a celebration and a pursuit for, for, for justice, like a fair trial, an eye for an eye. And that's why it was so shameful. So if you look at, if you look at verses 5 to 6 with me, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So for the Corinthians to take each other to court, there's, you know, they're doing what non-Christians typically do. right? They're living like the rest of the world. And they're doing that to each other, and they're supposed to be family. So he's, he's asking again, how can you do that? The Corinthians, they had allowed the world to infiltrate the way that they lived, instead of invading the world with the Jesus way of forgiveness. The, the, the Corinthians have allowed the world to infiltrate the way that they lived, instead of invading the world with the Jesus way of forgiveness. I remember when I was younger, I would watch this reality TV show called Judge Judy. And <laughs> <laughs> it was actually really popular back in the day. I don't even know if it airs anymore. Um, but she, she's a real judge. She was retired, and she would take real cases. Um, and, the, and the case would be on television, right, for entertainment. So, so why? Why are they so entertaining? Well, most of them were actually disputes among real family members. And, you know, I think, um, oh, and, and so that means that there was real hurt, right, real drama. And Judge Judy would be the mediator. And actually, she would come up with pretty good um, compromises and responses for them. And, you know, I think I enjoyed watching it because it made me feel better about myself. And, you know, I think 
And I, I felt superior that my family wasn't disintegrating like theirs. Sure, my family had problems, but not to the extent they dated, right? And that actually brought disrepute to those families, right? We're making fun of them, and that's, it, it's entertaining. It was a fuel for, for self-righteousness. And that's kind of what was happening in Corinth. They brought shame on the church because they would rather seek a kind of moral superiority than to forgive each other. They had forgotten that they were set apart for this exact purpose, right? To showcase the kind of radical forgiveness that was necessary to save them. And that's the exhortation for us. We should remember our status. God set us apart for his kingdom to participate in a countercultural way of living. And so we have the privilege of extending the same kind of forgiveness um, that we've been shown by God. And so if you guys remember back to those relationships, those difficult ones that you guys thought of before, what would it look like to participate in a gospel-driven forgiveness? With your parents, your school friends, your family here and youth group? What would that look like? Well, let's look at what Paul says it should look like in verses 7 through 8. He says, to have, any lawsuits at all, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrongs? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So Paul is saying, because the Roman courts are so corrupt, and they're so preferential and just by nature, the fact that the Corinthians are playing a part in that is itself wrong. Right? So the act of suing is itself wrong. And this is how one commentator puts it. There are no winners. The whole church loses. And the individuals involved lose, even if they win their cases. Why? Because by fighting it out in the courts, they become the perpetrators of wrongdoing. By fighting it out in the courts, they become the perpetrators of wrongdoing. Did you get that? Just as those families in Judge Judy showed themselves to be dysfunctional and disconnected, we're, we as a church family are showing ourselves to be dysfunctional and disconnected. It's family gone wrong. And really the, the Messiah way of living, the countercultural way of living is to lower ourselves, to become the least of all, following Christ's example of humility, right? And our temptation often, and for me too, right, is, is to become the greatest of all. And often that means we need to be the smartest, the funniest, right? The wittiest person in the room. It means we need to show off how much we serve at church, how well we're doing at school, how popular we are. But God is really interested in you becoming the least of all in this world so that he can exalt you to be the greatest of all in his world. And he wants you to remember that he has forgiven you of your cosmic grievances and so you can forgive others of their grievances done to you. And when you do, when you do that, when there's this pattern of church family messing up and hurting each other, followed by gospel-driven forgiveness, that's the kind of commitment-oriented love that attracts people, that draws people to the church, right? That's what people want to be a part of. That's how we make the gospel beautiful. And that's how we make Jesus come alive through the way we live. That's living set apart. I do want to give one more practical application from this section. You know, Paul is really encouraging the Corinthians here that they're is a Jesus way to resolve conflicts, right? You don't have to go to the courts. That's not the only way. And Jesus himself actually gives 
a, a really practical way in Matthew 18. Um, and you don't have to turn there, but follow along with me. This is Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this actually happened to me a few times um, back in college when I was from my couple of, couple of my close brothers and sisters. And I do want to tell you about one of those times. Um, remember when I mentioned earlier that I used to make jokes that went too far and it hurt people? Well, one of my friends in college actually confronted me about it. And I really appreciated not only that he confronted me, because that's hard to do, but how, the way that he did it. And I'm, I'm going to highlight three ways that, that, he, that he confronted me lovingly. And I'm hoping that I can replicate that. So first, he confronted me in private. Right? And so he's been really faithful to verse 15, where he says it's between you and him alone. So that, that privacy, it helped us to avoid a, avoid a spectacle, which was really helpful for me. Um, but it also created an environment where I could uh, accept my sinfulness humbly, and I could ask for, my forgive, ask for his forgiveness um, genuinely. Second, he confronted me with humility. So he actually first apologized because he had been bitter towards me. And that's really countercultural, right? That's living set apart. Because, I mean, who asks for forgiveness when I'm the one that wronged him first? And I could see how he was so characterized by this other's first attitude. Obviously, this is, it's hard to confront someone. And I could tell that he was uncomfortable. And it was awkward. And there, it requires a certain level of vulnerability on his part, too. But he also did want to confront me because he loves me. And he didn't want to continue, he didn't want to see me continue living in the way that I was, that I was living. And lastly, he confronted me in humility. I found out later on that this person had told a couple of other people before he confronted me. Um, and that wasn't, you know, not as a way to gang up on me, but really they were praying for us. They were praying for him who's confronting me to confront me with a gentle heart. And they were praying for me to receive with a gentle heart, to receive um, with a gentle and softened heart. And so to me, this was really a re really good picture of living set apart. My friend recognized that it's, it's a privilege to participate in the same kind of, the, showing the same kind of forgiveness um, that was shown to him by Jesus. And he remembered that his cosmic status given to him um, is the God-given power to carry out God's form of justice, which is forgiveness. God's form of justice is forgiveness. So what about us? What about the relational conflicts that we're going through? And if you aren't going through any, I'm sorry to say that you will at some point because we live in a fallen world and we're in messy relationships and it's bound to happen. So the real question is, how are you going to respond in those situations? Are we going to respond as forgetful people trying to wrong them back so that they'll feel the same kind of sting that we felt? Or are we going to respond um, back as set-apart people, boldly suffering wrong and confronting in love because we're born out of gospel-formed identity? And the foundation of our identity, which is Christ, mm -hmm. is the reason that we can be wronged and still be okay. And so that's our second point. That's our second exhortation for tonight, is don't forget your identity 
Don't forget your identity. Okay, so look with me at verses 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So verses 9 through 11 are very frequently misquoted um, and taken out of context. But look at that first word in verse 9. It says, or. And so that's a connecting word. It connects <laughs> verses 1 through 8 to verses 9 through 11. And following Paul's logic, that means that even chapter 5 is leading to verse 9 through 11. It's part of the same theme. And so Paul, what, what Paul is really saying here in these two verses is that this is who you were before. And you know, I think he was thinking about really specific people in the Corinthian church because he writes these as identity statements. Right? He's thinking, this is who you were. This is who you were. You used to be defined by your sexual immorality, your idolatry, your greed, your drunkenness. That used to be your identity. And Paul's purpose here, Paul's purpose here is, is not to condemn each person or to condemn each sin, but to say that they all used to be like this. Everyone used to be like this. Not one sin is greater. No one has anything to boast. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. So it, he's trying to wake them up. He's trying to remind them that the despicable ways that they were living, right, that they were acting, when they exact revenge and against each other and sue each other, they're living like their identities are still placed in things like sexual pleasure, money, other, other people's respect, status, right? And again, for us, if we, think, if we think back to those difficult relationships, what have we put our identities in? If it's with our parents, are you getting caught up in your idea of maturity that you know better than your parents do? And I've been there. If it's conflict with your classmates or your teammates, are you getting caught up in your idea of fairness and justice? Everyone has to pull the same weight in a group or in a team. And just for hypothetical purposes, just humor me, let's imagine what would happen if we left those identities alone. Well, maybe you get so puffed up in your maturity that you actually declare independence from your parents as a minor. Maybe you get so riled up by any hint of unfairness that you end up being the cause of a rift between your team. And so what Paul is, is trying to say, what, he's trying, what he isn't trying to say, is that you deserve help because you haven't changed. That's not what he's trying to say. He's not trying to condemn you. He's trying to say, wake up. He's trying to wake up their sleepwalking bodies so that they don't fall off a cliff or jump off a building on accident. He's operating on on, on compassion, not condemnation. And how do I know that? Well, let's look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. Again, he's saying that you used to be defined by your sexual immorality and your adultery and your homosexual practices. You used to be thieves and you used to be greedy. But you are no longer. You're not like this anymore. You're washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God, I love this verse. It's so full of hope and it's so brimming with the future, right? Now, I feel like these three words get tossed around a lot. And um, so we're going to kind of go into it really briefly. What do they mean? How do these words relate to our identity? 
our new humanity, well, all three words are actually metaphors and they're symbols of what God has done, of the transformation that's been done in our hearts. Okay, so first is you were washed. Okay, hopefully you're thinking about baptism here. Uh, we say at Lighthouse a lot, it's a symbol and a picture of your transformation, of your new life and your new identity in Christ. It's a cleansing of your, of your old one, your old identity of what you used to be, and now you're being brought into the purity of God. You were washed, and you were sanctified. Now, this is a really cool word because it has connotations in the past, the present, and the future. Because of sin, God's image in us is, is marred, and it's distorted. But in chapter 1, Paul says, we were sanctified. We were made holy because of Christ. Our identity changed as God set us apart for his special purpose. That's the past. And, and this is the present. You are being sanctified right now. This is not an overnight transformation. But because of Christ, this process of remaking God's image, it can actually begin. And because of the Holy Spirit, that process will continue. And that's the future. It will continue until the day you die or when Jesus comes back to bring everlasting shalom to our world. And so your identity begins in the past with Jesus and it ends in the future with Jesus. You were sanctified. And you were justified. So this is a legal word, which is very appropriate considering verses 1 through 8. The justification is actually a pronouncement that you are righteous, like in a court of law, right? You're no longer criminal. You are right before the most holy and fair judge. It's a declaration that all charges have been dropped and you are clear to go. You are justified. And why are these three words so powerful and so impactful? Well, it's because they remind us of what God has done so that we can be assured of what God will still do. These words remind us of what God has done so that we can be assured of what God will still do. You know, I think it's pretty common um, for us to think that our identities are permanent. Once you become a parent, you're a parent forever, even when your kids leave, right? If you've been born here in the South Bay, then your identity as a SoCal native, that won't change. And you know, it's actually true. Identity, our identity as sinners was permanent. There was no way to change that. We were stuck, and we didn't even know that we were going down this path of death. And that's why verse 11 is so hope-filled. Such were some of you. Paul is telling the Corinthians, you were stuck. You had no way of defining yourself than by any, anything other than your sexual sin and your idolatry, your greed and your swindling. You were actually dead in your sins. But God changed you. He did the impossible. He overturned our identity and set us on the path that is right, that leads to life. That means we're no longer defined by our past Right? Our past sins. Instead, our past sins remind us of what God has done through Jesus. We're no longer defined by our present. Our current sin struggles and misfortunes even, circumstantially, they remind us that God is not done, and his change in us is ongoing. But we are defined by the future. When our cosmic status becomes a reality, that's the hope. When we go from natural to the supernatural, when we go from the lesser to the greater, that hope defines us. God will finish the work that he started in us. And this is really the reason that Paul can exhort us the way that he did in verses 1 through 8. Because God carved out this new identity for us through an impossible forgiveness. 
so that we can extend the same kind of forgiveness and mercy to situations and relational conflicts that seem impossible to overcome. So when someone wrongs you, right, and your entire being wants to exact some kind of revenge, some kind of payment, remember that Jesus unfairly took God's revenge for us. And so let's ask God to help us do the impossible of actually forgiving other people. And then we fight our absolute hardest to live set apart, to live counterculturally. That's how you live up to your status, grounded in your identity. And Pastor John Mark Comer puts it this way. We need to live up to what we know is already true. Did you get that? We need to live up to what we know is already true. And what is already true because of Christ is that we're Christians. We're little Christs. That's who we are. That's our identity. But more often than not, we fail to live up to those standards. And you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to live up to those standards, right? The standard of the, the call of always obeying your parents. You have to help do the chores without being asked. You have to do your schoolwork excellently. You have to forgive your siblings unconditionally. And you have to abandon your comfort zone recklessly. That's hard to do. It's hard to live like that, which is why our identity reminders are, da- are that much more impactful. Remember who you are. Remember who you used to be, and you are no longer that. So let's follow Christ's example of washing each other's feet, lowering ourselves that, that others may be greater. And you know, maybe that means literally stooping down to the ground to pick up after the junior hires because they're messy. Maybe that really means you need to forgive whoever is coming into your mind right now. And you know what? You can do it. You can actually live set apart like that because you remember what you were like before, what you were like before, what I was like before. And you put that next to your future glory and you contrast that next to your current glory and that gives you hope and motivation. So I wanted to... um, share with you guys a part of my testimony. Um, And this is not just as a way to illustrate, um, but hopefully really to bring God's words to life. And so I'm actually going to tell you about two different dating relationships that I've been in. And this first one was in high school, when I wasn't saved. So dating for me back then was, was about wanting to be accepted and wanting to feel wanted, you know? I wanted to receive love. And so my identity was rooted in her affirmation for me. And what did that result in? We crossed a lot of emotional boundaries, right? So we shared more than we should as single people. And we started to become so emotionally attached that nothing else mattered to me except her approval of me and my approval for her. And we crossed a lot of physical boundaries. And even now, I'm unbelievably thankful that we didn't have premarital sex. But what was scariest, you know, thinking back in hindsight, is that honestly, I didn't care. I didn't care that I was participating and sexually immoral thoughts and actions. I felt guilty, sure, but I didn't care that I was committing adultery in my mind. And what ended up happening was an utter degradation of our relationship, a breakdown of communication, a destruction of our humanity, and eventually our feelings of love, right, dissipated, and we no longer felt that attraction. And so now it wasn't enough for me. I didn't feel satisfied, and so we split, we separated. And conveniently, it was when we were going to college. And again, just to reiterate, at this point, I was enslaved to the affirmation from other people, especially from her. 
But in college, God was, God was really gracious. He did the impossible, and he gave me a new life. He gave me a new identity in Christ. I was desperate for affirmation, and God gave me that affirmation. He loves me enough to sacrifice his son. And he loves me enough to pursue me even when I've run away. So what more affirmation do I need? Well, also in college, I started dating again. And I was thinking, well, it'll be different now. I have a personal relationship with Christ. I'm more mature. I felt that pain before in high school, so that won't happen again. I won't place all my happiness in her. Well, what actually happened was that this relationship became a platform for me to satisfy myself again. And so I used the affection and the affirmation that she showed me to puff myself up. Often I sought after my own comfort. I neglected to care for her relationship with God. And I I had a difficult time being vulnerable with her because I didn't want to be rejected. And we lost the fight against purity so many times. And the damage it did to our relationship, it was... It was unfathomable. We lost our ability to converse in a normal fashion because our interest in each other it degraded to nothing more than physical attraction. We saw isolation rather than community, and that helped us to continue indulging in our sins. It helped us to avoid lying to our friends because being honest with our friends, that kind of vulnerability comes with it a kind of shame and loss that I just couldn't, I just couldn't tolerate that. Okay, so what happened there? That sounds really familiar to your relationship in high school. Did God really change my identity? And I'm standing here hope-filled because yes, he really did change me. And the difference here is that we fought and we fought hard. The spirit, he convicted us to know that we did wrong. And he helped us to confess to our brothers and sisters. We made genuine, practical changes to avoid situations of isolation right, like that try to protect ourselves. In high school, sexual immorality and affirmation that ruled my heart, that defined me and dictated all my decisions, my thoughts, my words. But in college, although I would lapse into patterns of my past ways, those patterns, they didn't define who I was. That wasn't my identity. My identity wasn't dependent on my behavior, past or present. It was dependent on God's character of miraculous transformation. And that's the only reason we could fight to live more like Jesus. That's the only reason we could try to live up to the, we could try to live up to what we know is already true of our identities in Christ. That we are sons and daughters. And God is really gracious. He didn't leave us alone to figure all of that out. He provided us with family, right? So my close brothers at school, my lighthouse family, and even her sisters in Christ, they all reminded us of our identity. They reminded us that we don't need to try to make up for our sins with good works. What God wants for us is to recognize our brokenness and our neediness and rest in the confident assurance that he thinks of us no less than he did before we lapsed into our old patterns. He loves us the same. That's what it means to have an identity that's secured in Christ. God loves us the same now as he did before we lapsed into our old patterns. And even to that, to the end of that relationship, because we, we did end up breaking up, I knew that the decision to break up with her, and I still know, is one of the most loving decisions I've ever made in my life. It was a decision that prioritized her, her protection, her physical purity, and even her relationship with Jesus. And you know, and for me too, 
And you know, I never would have made that decision before my identity transformation. It's because I could rest in knowing that God would think of me and love me as highly as he did before I broke up with her, that I could actually do that. It's because I was able to remember my grounded identity and my unique status as a privileged, set-apart son of God. And I want to leave you guys with a couple encouragements. So first is, maybe after all this, you're asking, well, how do I actually remember? How do I do that? How do I remember my identity and my status? Well, I learned a hard, hard way, as you heard, um, that I, you can't do it on your own. You need people. And so let me encourage you, use your family, right? Your family can remind you. Your small group can remind you. Your advisors, we can remind you. That's your community, right? We are your community. We're your family. So let's help each other to live set apart. Let's help each other to live counterculturally. The second encouragement is, as I was studying this passage, I was captivated by this idea of long perseverance. You know, we often say that we don't just walk away from Jesus overnight. It takes weeks, months, years even, of rejecting Jesus on a daily basis. And you know, I think the opposite is just as true. Our identity transformation is ongoing. Every decision that we make can, uh, can be a step towards holiness, to live out what we know is already true of our identities. We can't restore God's image overnight, but we can put one foot in front of the other. And God promises us that we will get there. And, that, I, I, and I love that idea because it's so, it's so hopeful, right? It means, that means that it starts in the mundane. It starts here. It starts in the everyday life. Right? In the next hour, in the next few minutes even, we can make decisions that love others, that honors God, because we know that God will use those moments to change us one degree closer to Christ. And so that's, that's my final exhortation. Stop thinking so lowly of yourselves. You guys are God's people. You guys are his elect. You're set apart for his special purposes. And so remember your identity and, re- and revel in your status. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're so thankful that you've given us family. And you've given us these people who are sitting next to us. God, and not only that, but God, God you've given us the power to forgive them. God, the power to show off the gospel, the power to show off, God, committed, oriented, oriented love. God, the power to show off Jesus. This is our Savior. This is our Master. But this is also our brother. Jesus is our brother. God, and we're so thankful that you've elevated our status and you've given us an identity that's so rooted and so secured that, that we can have such a reality. God, so I pray for, for all of us that even tonight, God, we would lower ourselves. God, that you would be glorified, that you would be raised, God, that you would be elevated beyond our imagination. God, we are so thankful and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.